Welcome to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. This week's episode of Westminster Insider is brought to you by Klarna. Klarna was created 16 years ago with a simple idea. To change the way you pay by charging retailers instead of our customers. Though we're 16, we like to think we're just getting started. Senior ministers, officials and advisors like me fell short of the standards the public has a right to expect, said Dominic Cummings on Wednesday as he reflected on his tumultuous spell as the Prime Minister's chief advisor. When the public needed us most, the government failed. And with Westminster still gripped this weekend by the fallout from Cummings' epic testimony before MPs, it's worth pausing for a moment to consider the nature of what we've just seen. Because senior cabinet ministers, including Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, Matt Hancock and Michael Gove, have all discussed the government's pandemic response before select committees on multiple occasions over the past year. So too have all our top civil servants, the chief medical officer, the head of the NHS and many more. Yet it's the testimony of Dominic Cummings which has held the nation, or at least Westminster, enthralled. An unelected, unqualified, unaccountable special advisor who departed government late last year. It is completely crazy that I should have been in such a senior position. Part of the never-ending media circus surrounding Cummings, it goes without saying, is down to the nature of the man himself and his famous willingness to throw imaginary hand grenades at anyone he thinks deserves it. But his celebrity status is hardly an isolated case. Westminster's obsession with the all-powerful special advisor, the SPAD in the local parlance, goes back years. The names and the fates of Alistair Campbell, Damien McBride, Andy Coulson, Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy, the last of whom we'll be hearing from later in the show, will forever be interwoven with those of our most recent Prime Ministers. These were spads who, in their day, became almost mythical figures, dominating Westminster in a way mere cabinet ministers, for example, could rarely hope to match. And going back even further, it was the overbearing influence of one of Margaret Thatcher's advisers, a guy called Alan Walters, which triggered the resignation of Nigel Lawson as her Chancellor. And these were just the most senior spads, the ones who, for one reason or another, burst through the fog of Whitehall and into the public consciousness, as Cummings did so spectacularly with his jaunt to Barnard Castle last year. But there are more, so many more, you've never heard of. In fact, there are well over a hundred special advisers working within government right now, pulling strings, banging heads, rewriting policies, leaking stories and goodness knows what else. Each of them earning taxpayer-funded salaries of between 45 and £145,000 a year. The number of spads has quadrupled since the 1990s, and the mythology around their power and influence has only soared higher. Their hours are long, their jobs are precarious, and their lifestyles border on the catastrophic. But make no mistake, they're loving every minute. That's the best job in the world, being a special advisor. It is fun and exciting and pacey and important. There's nothing better than swanning into Downing Street with a pass and walking past the tourists. And anyone who tells you that they get used to that is lying. It was quite fun to join a royal visit to China. I was like taking selfies of myself on the iPad to send to my mum. I was like, oh. 
in the Forbidden City. Swanning around garden parties and having picnics in number 10 gardens and, you know, hanging out with the Prime Minister and getting your photograph taken with celebrities. It's a very intense experience, but it's exhilarating. But who are these people? What on earth do they do all day? Are they really all-powerful, Svengali-like figures, barking orders at civil servants and making big decisions without bothering to consult their ministers? Or are they glorified bag carriers, jumped up, overpaid Malcolm Tucker wannabes who think they're running the country, but barely have the life experience to run a bath? You are now being scrutinised for what you wear, what you say, your feelings, your cleavage and your dress, which, by the way, is way too loud. Too loud? Yeah, I'm getting tinnitus here. Or could it be, deep breath, that they're all of those things and more? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're looking at how special advisers took over Westminster and whether it's time these shadowy movers and shakers were dragged out, blinking into the light. Pop quiz. What do the following politicians have in common? David Cameron, Ed Miliband, George Osborne, Andy Burnham, David Miliband, Oliver Dowden, Ed Bulls, John Ashworth, Michael Bortillo, Jack Straw, John Whittingtail, Vince Cable, Hilary Benn, John Redwood. Yes, yes, they're all white, male and early to late middle-aged. This is Westminster after all. But apart from that, they all started their political careers as special advisers. Some of this you probably know. The two Eds, Balls and Miliband, were famously powerful aides in Gordon Brown's treasury before eventually becoming cabinet ministers under his premiership. David Cameron was, I think, our first ever spad-turned-prime minister, having worked for Norman Lamont when he was Chancellor during the crisis of Black Wednesday. In the meantime, the government has concluded that Britain's best interests are served by suspending our membership of the exchange rate mechanism. Andy Burnham was a new Labour spad in the early Blair years, a classic product of the party machine, though you wouldn't know it now from his carefully crafted anti-Westminster persona. The government is not giving city regions the necessary financial backing for full lockdowns. And who knew Vince Cable, the former Lib Dem leader, was also a Labour Party spad way back in the day. Mr Speaker, the House has noticed the Prime Minister's remarkable transformation in the last few weeks from Stalin to Mr Bean. <laughs> now, the reason so many of our best-known politicians started out as special advisers is that, quite simply, for many Westminster wannabes, this was, and is, the obvious first step towards a serious political career. Incredible as it might sound to those of you living out in the real world, there is, in and around Westminster, a whole army of ambitious 20-somethings for whom landing a job as a special advisor is literally a dream come true. I was like one of those like absolute Tory nerds that sort of turned up and you know thought it was the most amazing thing to work in Parliament. This is Salma Shah, who worked as an advisor to Sajid Javid across five government departments between 2014 and 2019. So I'd always sort of known that these jobs were out there. You sort of end up in a network of people that are there and always looking for an opportunity to get into government in some kind of role. Once you get into the Westminster Village, and only in the Westminster Village, is it seen that you know the apex of your career is to become a, a special advisor at number 10. And this is Theo Bertram, 
who was a Downing Street special advisor in the Blair and Brown governments between 2006 and 2010. For all the researchers and all of the kind of junior staff, the idea of being a special advisor carried a certain kudos and, and that was what people aspired to be. And I think once you are a special advisor, then you always carry around this glow of self-importance. The Blair government, of course, was the first to really put spads at the heart of British political life, doubling their numbers and giving previously unheard of powers and control to unelected advisers like Alistair Campbell and Jonathan Powell. David Cameron, as with most things in life, was more than happy to follow the Blair model. I can well remember my first contact with the spad world while working as a regional journalist up north. Waiting with other hacks for the PM to enter the room, we were suddenly overrun by this army of mini Camerons, posh young 20-something men in sharp suits and with very slick back hair, swarming around us, tapping on phones, barking orders at journalists, oozing more self-importance than the Prime Minister himself. See, the thing with becoming a special advisor is that it is a genuine shortcut to power. To become an MP can take years of tedious handshaking and fundraising and grassroots campaigning just to get selected as a candidate in a winnable seat. Then you have to fight and win an election. And then you've got to serve your time as a humble backbencher, hoping that one day you'll land a post as a junior minister, which is still only the first rung on the unsteady ladder towards a decent job in the cabinet. But for special advisers, it could hardly be more different. These are young men and women with little in the way of obvious qualifications, plucked by a minister from their jobs in the media or a think tank or at party HQ and propelled straight into the top of government. From the very first morning they're at their minister's side, in meetings, in TV studios and functions and at summits, across Whitehall and way beyond. Well, it's the best job in the world, being a special advisor. I mean, look, I haven't been doing it now for nearly a year and a half. I'm thinner, fitter, richer, have a social life, and I'm not tired all the time. But, you know, would I go back tomorrow? Probably. Uh, But, um, I mean, it, it was just brilliant. This is Peter Cardwell, a former BBC Newsnight producer who worked as special advisor across multiple government departments between 2016 and 2019. He published a memoir last year, The Secret Life of Special Advisors, which lifts the lid on the day-to-day of the shadowy spad world. You're just kind of going around Parliament, going around Westminster, going in and out of Downing Street, getting on and off RAF planes, you know, flying to peace talks in Belfast, going to Brussels, talking to Michel Barnier. I mean, as a journalist, you witness a lot of this stuff and you see it happening, but to actually be in the room and sitting at the table and giving advice to the people who are the players in that and sometimes making contributions yourself is just astonishing and an immense privilege. The role of special advisor has formally existed within government since the 1960s. Yet for such an important job, it's amazingly ill-defined. There's a civil service contract and a code of conduct to adhere to. But there's no formal training, barely any HR support, and certainly nothing so helpful as an actual job description. So I think the official definition is a special advisor is a temporary civil servant appointed to work for a particular minister. This is Tim Durrant, Associate Director at the Institute for Government Think Tank and an expert on how ministerial teams operate within Whitehall. Unlike the permanent civil service who don't 
change when there's a change of government. The special advisor works for an individual minister from a particular party and is there to support that minister in their role and bring a kind of political lens to the work of government. The job description is effectively whatever the Secretary of State wants them to do. So it can range from bag carrying, being a shoulder to cry on, passing messages out to the civil service, negotiating with other government departments, maintaining a relationship with number 10. It can be all sorts of things. I think generally most ministers have two special advisors. They have one who focuses more on policy questions and making sure that the policy advice that officials are putting together takes into consideration the the minister's priorities, and one who focuses more on media and kind of messaging and handling. A layperson might think, well, you know, the government has an army of civil servants, thousands and thousands of people who are steeped in the expertise of running a country and public services and so on. Why do we need to start bringing in more political people without necessarily any experience of the government? It does protect the impartiality of the civil service. So it means that there is no expectation that civil servants will provide any kind of political advice. And that's a good thing. An impartial civil service that looks objectively at problems and offers advice to ministers without worrying about the politics of whether or not this will work for that minister's party or without thinking about what it means for that minister's re-election possibilities is a good thing. Peter Cardwell told me this is a central part of the job pouring a dose of cold political reality onto the dreamy ideas cooked up by civil servants. In crude terms, the civil service will say, this is a good policy and will work on paper. Your job as a special advisor is to say, this will work on paper, but the media will mole you and the backbenchers won't put it through, therefore you shouldn't do it. And can't a cabinet minister do that on their own? Why do they need these extra people to tell them things that might surely should be quite obvious to them, shouldn't they? Most cabinet ministers have excellent political instincts. What you are as a special advisor is essentially an extension of that. You're out there to be their eyes and ears, to pick up the gossip, to talk to the media on their behalf, to talk to policymakers on their behalf. What very few people understand is just how much time pressure any Secretary of State is under. They can't know everything. They can't read everything. They're not superhuman. And special advisors are there to do the extra heavy lifting and to do two other things. Any special advisor worth their salt will be a connection to number 10 and will be able to get things done at number 10 on a spad-to-spad level and also be the voice of their minister to the department. Often quite junior civil servants will say, what is the Secretary of State likely to think about this? And you as a special advisor are there as their mouthpiece. And will that always involve going to them and asking them, or do you find that sometimes an effective special advisor can really second-guess their minister and just say, no, stop, you right there, he's never going to do it. Do you have the authority to do that? Yes, absolutely. Unless you're speaking with the same voice as your minister, then there's no point in you. And what I always said was spend as much time with the Secretary of State as you can, travel with him if you can, go to events with him if you can. Just that time in the back of the car, on the train, getting to know them, getting to know how they think, what their priorities are, what million different directions they're pulled in. And you become an extension of that person. You become someone who people feel they can come to to say, look, I know your minister's really busy, but I just wanted to ask you if we can get this done or if you can talk to them. And the closer you are to your minister, both politically and in terms of the work you do, the better a special advisor you are. That gives you quite a lot of power then, doesn't it? If you're having to essentially make decisions on your minister's behalf, albeit ones that you're pretty sure they would make, you know, that gives that person in that role quite a lot of clout of their own, doesn't it? It absolutely does, but your power derives from one source only, and that is your minister. This symbiotic relationship between SPAD and their ministers can get 
well, kind of weird. At one point in Peter Cardwell's book, a friend laughingly compares his close relationship with James Brokenshire to that of Disciple and Messiah. I'm pretty sure it's the only time I've heard the former housing secretary be compared to a religious saviour. But the extent to which ministers rely on their closest advisers was emphasised last year, when Sajid Javid resigned as Chancellor rather than allow the Prime Minister to sack his entire team. I don't believe any self-respecting minister would accept such conditions, and so therefore I thought the best thing to do was to go. Salma Shah had already left government by that point, but having worked for Javid for the previous five years, was unsurprised at his decision. I think once you are asked to take away that one bit of the structure that works for you as the minister, it's effectively telling you that we don't trust you to do your job. She says her own relationship with Javid was also very close, if, predictably, a little odd. I was really interested in working for Sajid because his story sort of reflected my story. I suppose it's the same as loads of second-generation immigrant stories. I mean, it sounds really pompous, but I felt like I knew him and that I could help him because I felt like I knew where he was coming from. I used to say to Sajid that we like we have a, the most dysfunctional relationship. Every spat I think with their minister has a really dysfunctional relationship. And I used to sort of think that I was Sajid's sort of overbearing Italian mother. That was, I don't know, somehow that, that's the character I sort of assumed when I was with him, which was like, you must do this and you mustn't do this and this is what you need to think about. So, yeah, you're very, very close to them because they go on a visit, you go with them. They have meetings, you're with them. They've got a dinner or a function to go to in the evening. It's likely that you're going to be there. And sometimes you're the person that they're looking to for the briefing and the advice. And sometimes you're literally just carrying their bag or their coat. And so you can be, you know, half an hour previously by their side, you know, really arguing about a really knotty issue, policy issue. And the next minute you're sort of rushing around a reception trying to find them a glass of water. It doesn't sound like a clearly defined role to me when you put it like that. Do you find yourself in all sorts of bizarre situations doing things with a minister that you never would have maybe dreamed when you first go into the job? <laughs> I want to tell you a story, but I know Sajid's going to kill me. Um, well, trying to find him a face powder that matched his skin tone was quite a fun <laughs> thing to go and do. I mean, in the end, his wife took pity on me and said, don't worry, I'll sort it out. <laughs> I was so grateful to her. I'll tell you honestly, the reason we did it is because um, there was one conference year where he went out on stage and we worked so hard on this speech and the only thing that anybody remembers is that he was sweating so badly. Oh, and he was just like absolutely... Dr I mean, it was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd always try and like keep, you know, like a kit handy of just like trying to dabble with some powder or something. And this is what I mean. I'm just like this overbearing sort of helicopter parent that's kind of around all the time. <laughs> for Theo Bertram, working in Downing Street for an under-fire Gordon Brown, it was loyalty to and honesty with the leader which mattered most in maintaining the relationship. You've got to be loyal to your minister but sometimes your job is to tell the minister that they're being a dick or, you know, that that actually it's in the interest of the party or the country not to do this thing that they think they want to do. And sometimes those things are aligned and sometimes they're not. And I can't think of anything much harder than telling Gordon Brown that he's being a dick. Yeah, there are lots of things that I've had to tell Gordon that he's not been hugely happy about. Um, and you know, when you prepare for PMQs, part of my job was to come in and tell him what was in the papers or 
what might be raised by a backbencher, which could be, you know, anything that was doing the rounds. You've got to give them an honest opinion and that's all you can do. And sometimes you, you need to pick your moment. Did you have to take the, uh, the hairdryer treatment from time to time? Yeah, the thing I always found most scary from Gordon was not when he was angry because you just wait for him to kind of, uh, for that kind of steam to blow out and then we'd get back and focused. The problem was when you told him something and then there was this kind of glare across the cabinet table and then there'd just be the silence and and then you were never sure how to puncture that. And, you know, it's relatively easy to deal with people being angry because that's a natural reaction when you're kind of presenting them with some terrible news headline that's completely unfair and utterly biased. But I think, you know, it's much harder when Gordon was depressed and he was silent and quiet. And then thinking about how do you lift someone up in that moment is a really hard thing for someone in their late 20s or early 30s to think about how do I lift this guy up? You know, those were things I'd never have to deal with. And I think a lot of what special advisors have to deal with is the human stuff and not just the political stuff. Such is the weird life of the SPAD. Part overbearing mother, part truth teller, part makeup artist, part mental health coach. Coming up in part two, I'll be speaking to Nick Timothy, who as Joint Chief of Staff to Theresa May became one of the most powerful and controversial SPADs we've ever seen in Whitehall until his dramatic fall from grace just 12 months into the job. Stay with us. This is an advert from Klarna. In the time it takes to listen to this advert, buy now, pay later customers in the UK will have saved £100 in interest charges. Over a year, that adds up to £76 million, the same as it costs to build the London Eye. We're able to save customers money because we charge retailers a fee instead of the customer, and 14 million shoppers in the UK seem to like it. So why pay interest and why pay fees when there's a smarter way to pay? Klarna. Oh, there's another 100 quid. Please shop responsibly. 18 plus UK residents only. Credit subject to status. TNCs apply. Credit provided by Klarna Bank ABC. Klarna.com for details. There has been no SPAD more powerful inside any government of recent times than Theresa May's former aide, Nick Timothy. Dominic Cummings might have been getting all the headlines of late, but as he made abundantly clear before MPs this week, there were plenty of occasions his advice or his demands were dismissed or ignored by his boss. Fundamentally, I regarded him as unfit for the job, and he had the view that he was Prime Minister and I should just be doing as he wanted me to, and that's obviously not sustainable for very long. Nick Timothy, on the other hand, had the Prime Minister's ear like few other spads before or since. Timothy and his fellow Chief of Staff Fiona Hill had worked for Theresa May for years, earning their boss's trust as slavishly loyal spads at the Home Office, where they helped her become the longest-serving Home Secretary in more than 50 years. The first rule of SPAD Club is that you don't really matter, your boss matters. And the value you give to the department is helping them to understand what your boss wants. It takes a lot to get things through the machine. And special advisors, you know, I think, generally speaking, put their hearts and souls into trying to do that. In my case, I lost a full head of hair trying to do that for Theresa in the Home Office. <laughs> and so I think it's really important for ministers, but it's actually really important for the departments as well. You know, there are sometimes controversies between special advisors and 
officials, but actually, I think in my experience, officials actually like strong special advisors uh, because inevitably the time they get with ministers is quite limited and special advisors who really understand their boss and understand the politics uh, in which policy is being made can really help officials to get things right earlier in the process. The IFG's Tim Durrant, who spent several years as a civil servant in the Treasury during the 2010s, agrees. One thing that I think a lot of civil servants really value is when a special advisor understands the difference between the official and the SPAD roles. They would tell us what the minister was thinking about this issue, what their kind of political angle on it was, so that we could bear that in mind as we were writing our advice for ministers, because there's no point writing something that the minister sees and is like, well, obviously this isn't going to play well in such and such a constituency or with such and such a group. And so it's just a waste of everyone's time. What you don't want, I think, is spads who try and do everything. And if you have an advisor who thinks, well, I'm going to write all of the advice, I'm going to sort of, you know, hold all of these decisions really close, that just gums up the machine. So I sort of assumed that special advisors would be uh, viewed with some suspicion by most of the civil service. Is that not the case then? I don't think so. I think, you know, there are always going to be those individuals who are a bit Malcolm Tucker-esque and who think they're there to be their kind of minister's sort of attack dog. But most special advisors aren't like that. Now, I never heard Nick Timothy compared to Malcolm Tucker, the heroically sweary spad turned demagogue in the thick of it. But attack dog? Holding all the decisions close? Gumming up the machine? Fairly or unfairly, all of this and more was thrown at Timothy after he and Fiona Hill took up their all-powerful spad roles in number 10. We went into number 10, I think, with a bit too much of the Home Office with us. I think Theresa was a very successful Home Secretary, and I think we did a good job in the Home Office. And we did it by, to be honest, being very controlling and making sure that absolutely everything that was going on in the department was coming through us. And that was all feasible, it all worked. You know, the Home Office is a legendarily dangerous place for ministers to work. Their career expectancy tends to be quite short. And I think we didn't just survive. I think we did quite a lot of good work there. But number 10 is really different. You have a small team of officials. You don't have the sort of direct policy levers. You don't have any of the kind of data and management information that the departments have. You know, your job is to sort of set the strategy you know, it's to write the score, not play all the instruments. Your job is not to do the jobs of the secretaries of state. And that's, in a way, that sounds like quite a simple and obvious difference. But in reality, especially when you've come from a department, I think it's a little difficult to make that transition. And I, I think that's probably one of the ways in which Theresa as Prime Minister didn't. And I think to some extent, we didn't either. And your own specific role when you're doing that very senior job in number 10, was, as you say, very different. When there's so many demands on the Prime Minister's time, do you find, you know, you're essentially doing more than advising, you must be doing quite a lot of big decision making yourself at that point? There are certain kinds of decisions that you can make because you know what the answer will be. But you know, it's your responsibility to work out where the line is with that sort of stuff and what needs a broader discussion. And I think I think I was always quite careful about doing that. You do find yourself in situations where you think, oh, Christ, <laughs> that was actually quite a big call. I remember there was a situation in the Home Office where the Arab Spring was underway and there was actually violence in Cairo. And there was a plane ready to fly to the UK with British nationals on. 
and Teresa was out of the country on a trip and impossible to reach. I think the immigration minister was in the air on the way to America and also unreachable. And the UK border agency, as it was then, was being run by an interim chief executive who basically got very sweaty and nervous about authorising the departure of this flight. I remember sitting in the permanent secretary's office giving the authorisation for this plane to fly to the UK. And about half an hour later, I was sitting at my desk and you could see the plane taking off on the TV news. I remember thinking it shouldn't work in such a way that I just gave that authorization. But Theresa, as Home Secretary, I think confirmed it retrospectively and said it was the right thing. But you you find yourself in situations like that sometimes. Yourself and Fiona in those number 10 jobs suddenly became quite big characters in the media over the course of that year. Was that a surprise to you? Were you sort of ready for that? Well, I think it kind of happened a bit gradually. So, you know, you get mentioned in print, you know, once or twice in opposition and then... You get mentioned a bit more when you're a departmental special advisor. You might get sucked into a controversy or two, as we did. And then by the time you get to number 10, uh, you know, everybody wants to know all about you. And I think partly because Teresa herself isn't a big sort of boisterous personality in the way that something like Boris is. People had spent a long time trying to work out who she was when she was Home Secretary and, you know, had still sort of come away scratching their heads a little bit. There was a lot of focus on us, I think, because there was an opportunity for little bit of colour and I suppose a sense of mystery who are these people behind the Prime Minister which to be honest I hated because you always know that the more you're built up the more somebody's going to try to knock you down I remember my parents saying something about a profile that had been written of me about me as if to say oh that was quite good and I said do not enjoy this because something bad's going to happen at some point and obviously I had no idea uh, how right I was about that (laughs) You were accused of overstepping the mark as a number 10 advisor in the aftermath. Was there some truth in that when you look back at it with perspective? Did you go too far in your dealings with cabinet ministers sometimes or was that do you not accept any of that criticism? I don't think I did, to be honest. I mean, I had a pretty fractious relationship with Philip Hammond. I think some of the stuff that's that's written, you know, gets exaggerated. I think people want to think that these things are a bit like the thick of it. It's a bit more boring in reality. I felt like we were pulled in too many directions, really. So it was a little too much to be the kind of primary advisor and also the chief of staff and therefore managing a team. And I think we neglected that side of things because we were actually too busy trying to be advisors ourselves. There seems to be a sort of received wisdom now, certainly in parts of the pundit class that key advisors can be too powerful and having seen it yourself up close is there some truth in that criticism lack of accountability and so forth well I think if I'm really honest I would say that there might have been a bit too much of me in a lot of what Theresa did when she made the speech on her first evening as prime minister I remember somebody and I think it was a Tory MP saying in the press so oh, that was pure Nick Timothy and 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 you know I did write that People react badly when special advisors, you know, who aren't elected, are seen to have too much say over the substance. And I think they're right. Elected politicians are the people who should have the say over the substance. And I think for whatever reason, I think there probably was a little bit too much of me in in some of those things. So while Dominic Cummings' chief complaint about his time as a number 10 advisor 
was that he didn't have enough influence over the Prime Minister. Nick Timothy appears to accept that sometimes he probably had too much. And of course, Timothy's central role in Theresa May's Downing Street operation meant that he and Fiona Hill were forced to carry the can following her disastrous showing in the 2017 election. It was a gamble that appears to have backfired. Exit polls after the UK snap election suggest the Conservatives, led by Theresa May, could lose their majority with a hung parliament. Tory chiefs demanded they resign within hours of the result being confirmed. A fall from grace like no other. Well, almost no other. There is something, it seems, about the high-profile nature of a spad's role which makes scandals and these dramatic falls the order of the day. There were no errors of fact in the WMD dossier in September 2000. The, the Niger source was nothing Excuse to me. do with us. Get your facts right before you make... The days of photographers following Andy Coulson's orders are long gone. The man who rose to the top in Fleet Street and then Downing Street was sent to jail today. 18 months for overseeing phone hacking. I was involved in decisions affecting millions of people and I thought that I should try to help as much as I could do. I can understand that some people will argue that I should have stayed at my home in London throughout. Mr Brown, will you condemn what Damien McBride did on your behalf? Mr Brown, was Damien McBride acting with your permission? Theo Bertram was working alongside Damien McBride in Downing Street when he was forced to resign. Leaked emails revealed McBride had been involved in an apparent plot to spread scurrilous gossip about Tory opponents online. Damien, from the time he was at the Treasury, to getting Gordon into number 10 was, you know, Gordon's right-hand man, but he was also, you know, the hitman, and he was there to take out the opponents and kneecap anyone that might stand in Gordon's way. And he did that brilliantly. And then he got into number 10, and his role was less clear. He was still leading the comms, but suddenly that combative streak that had served Gordon so well was out of place in the role that he was in. Damien was always who he was, you know, and Gordon knew that when he brought him in. I think there's a parallel there with Dominic Cummings. I think Boris knew he was getting when he hired him. But I think, you know, was he hiring him for a role in number 10 or was he hiring him because of what he'd done in the invoke leave? For Peter Cardwell, there's something in the freedom the job offers that means there will always be rogue spads whose behaviour steps outside the normal boundaries. I didn't see it happening with... Fiona or Nick or Dominic, but I've definitely seen special advisors who've lost the run of themselves, who are hysterical, who are too powerful or, or exercising too much power. I've seen people screaming at civil servants. I've seen people being unreasonable to other special advisors. It is a very high-octane, high-pressure environment, and it is a very emotional environment as well, and you can feel in a real pressure cooker, a real almost kind of siege mentality sometimes. Adding to the fraught nature of the job is its inherently precarious status. It's not just high-profile number 10 advisers who can be caught up in scandals and forced to quit. Who can forget Joe Moore, a spad to Stephen Byers in the new Labour years, who told colleagues that 9-11 was a good day to bury bad news? Or Adam Smith, Jeremy Hunt's old spad at the Department for Culture, who was forced out over cosy text messages with a lobbyist working for Rupert Murdoch? If you lose the trust of your minister, as Dominic Cummings ultimately did, you're out. If you lose the trust of Downing Street, you're out. And worst of all, if your minister suddenly loses their job, you're out too, clearing your desk and heading home with a P45 that same day. 
through absolutely no fault of your own. Yeah, to go in in the morning and to not know exactly what's going to happen or whether you're going to have a job at the end of the day is a very, very unsettling experience. Peter Cardwell lost his job and was then rehired by a new boss multiple times during his three and a bit years as a SPAD. The first time, I mean, James Brokenshire had cancer and that was horrendous and I was just thinking about him really and he's my mate and continues to be my mate. But other times it was a matter of Amber Rudd having to resign because of Windrush, for example. James Brokenshire was sacked as housing secretary by Boris Johnson when he took over. And then I was sacked after six months with Robert Buckland. So it is very weird, but I think you've got to be philosophical about it. And the worst thing you can be is bitter. You've had this incredibly privileged position. You've earned good money to do an exciting and interesting job. And you've got very good employment prospects. What are you moaning about? Even for those who manage to hang on to their jobs, the shelf life of a SPAD remains short, largely because few people have the stamina to pursue this kind of work as a long-term career. I don't think you ever switch off. Here's Theo Bertram. I remember waking up one morning with a hangover. The only night of the week I could get drunk was a Friday night because Saturday night you had to be ready for the Sunday papers. And I woke up because my mobile started ringing and I could see it was the number 10 switchboard and I thought, I'm just ignoring it. And then my home phone, of which I don't even know the number, starts ringing. And at that point, I realised, like, I'm not going to have a choice here. And I pick up the phone and it's Gordon who launches straight into a tirade about something in the Telegraph before I've even had a chance to kind of collect my thoughts. So... Yeah, you never get the chance to switch off. It's you know a totally all-consuming experience. You can only do that job for a short period of time because it's exhausting and, and completely, um, you know, there's never a break from it. You're always switched on. Last question, would you recommend it as a job to someone you cared about young in their early 20s who fancied being a spad? Yeah, I think so. I think it would be wrong of me not to recommend it to someone. But I think, you know, going with a, as healthy an attitude as possible, that you're only going to do this for a short period and there'll be terrible moments. But yeah, it's exhilarating. And you, you, know, you learn an awful lot to be right there at the coalface of it, right on, kind of, right on the shoulder of the prime ministers as they make these decisions is tremendous privilege. And yeah, I, I recommend it to anyone, um, but with some health warnings. So that's the role of the special advisor. Exciting, exhausting and surreal in equal parts. They are, in Peter Cardwell's words, political mayflies, with perhaps the shortest lifespans of any key role in Westminster. Yet the inherent glamour of the job and all it entails means that as each bright young thing burns out, 20 more are lined up and scrabbling for the job. And for their part, ministers will always need loyal allies they can trust in a government machine surrounded by political enemies and a civil service which may have wildly different priorities to their own. So while Dominic Cummings himself is now ancient history, consigned to the world of overly long Twitter threads and soon, you suspect, a Substack account in urgent need of an editor, it will surely only be a matter of time before another all-powerful advisor rises to take his place. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free. And why not check out our back catalogue of episodes covering everything from budgets to by-elections and everything in between. 
Alternatively, I'll be posting a 79-tweet thread on Twitter later this afternoon with all the salient points. My producer this week was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my managing editor is James Randerson. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then. <laughs>